Right. Probably they go hand in hand, the oldest and the meanest. Sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, praise and honor and glory be to your name, for you are the creator of this beautiful world. You are creator of this great universe. Father, even though we see death, sorrow, crying, and pain, although many within our walls are hurting, we look outside and still see beauty. We see the remnants of your power and your love. Father, come close to those who are hurting today. Come close to those who, who, who lack in some way and, and come close to those to remind them that if they seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and all of his righteousness, that everything will be provided for them. May the spirit of the Lord be here in a mighty way and may we leave this place inspired to change the world around us. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now I'm going to show you probably a little bit of a, a funny picture. I mean, it's not really funny. But, but if you look at this next picture, you will recognize who the face is. Which, do you recognize who the face is? Kiddos, do you, do you recognize who this is? Okay, it is Donald Trump. It's, it's President Donald Trump. But, Ethan, do you recognize whose suit this is? Because this is not what he normally wears. Does anybody, a general, you are correct, it is a general, but specifically, does anybody under the age of 30 know which general this is? Yeah, Eisenhower? No, it is not. Is that who you were thinking? MacArthur? It is not MacArthur either. You, you are under 30? Okay, I believe it. I am not going to disagree. But anybody, any other guesses? So go ahead and say, General Patton. Actually, at his ob in his obituary, it said it called him unorthodox, audacious, but inspiring. And when the Nazi generals that were captured were asked who was the most, who, who was the general they feared the most, almost, almost with no other answer out there, they said General Patton. He was so feared among, amongst the Nazis as the greatest ally, the greatest general of the allies. That, that, the, that they just, even hearing that he was coming near them, they would want to retreat. At least this is the legend that came across. That within 10 months, he had already carved through six Nazi sort of oppressed countries. He, he has even been known... 
for some of his quotes, and I'm only going to quote one of them. He says, we shall attack and attack until we are exhausted, and then we shall attack again. But just like the previous picture, not everybody in the world loved this guy. He was, there were people that loved him, and there were people that hated him. Specifically, there were two soldiers, I believe it was in August of 1943, two in two separate accounts, that he actually, they, they had gone through a thing called battle fatigue. Have you ever heard of battle fatigue? Battle fatigue was that after they had been fighting for so long, whether it was psychological or actual physical fatigue, they were connected and they felt like they could go no longer. So Patton went beyond the inspiring message and took his hand and slapped him across the face. This is how, this guy was a tough as nails guy. I think he actually ate nails. The legend was that he ate nails for breakfast. You know, probably, probably somebody who I would think is tough but, but also is a very gentle soul is like Sam. You know, he's just tough and he will... It doesn't matter how tired he is. He will persevere, persevere, persevere. That's who General Patton was. But also you must know that there were people that hated him. So much so that when this incident happened, this other general that you mentioned, Eisenhower, wanted to send him home. He wanted to send him home because he says he's not good for the war. But one of Patton's... uh, what do you call him? Somebody who's underneath, huh? He was an understudy. Bradley, he was, a, he was an understudy, but then he actually eventually took over and became his boss, outranked him, said, no, no, no. I have studied with this guy. I have fought with this guy. There is no way we are winning this battle without him. So just keep him on the sideline. Keep him quiet. Make him apologize in public but keep him here. And so for about a year, Eisenhower kept him quietly on the sideline. But Eisenhower still used his name. He would spread rumors. He would say, oh, they're invading over here. And the Nazis believed it. And they would fear. They would tremble at this. Eisenhower knew the power of Patton's name. It is believed, now it depends on which historian you talk to, that the war would not have ended so quickly without General Patton. Now we go, because this sermon is not about General Patton, to another icon within the Reformation. Now this is almost anticlimactic. Because we did Martin Luther. And Martin Luther seems to be, he's such a big personality. And he's such a big part of the, of the Reformation. So much so that this Tuesday, which most of the world, well at least within our context, knows as Hallow's Eve, Halloween. Which I think is the enemy's purpose because the enemy trembles at what really was happening at that time. The enemy knew that this was the spark 
that was going to start a reformation among God's people. But 500 years ago, this upcoming Halloween, which I don't even like to call that, I like to call it the Reformation Day, Martin Luther came and nailed on the castle church. And there was a man who was a boy at that time. His name was John Calvin. Everybody, John Calvin, say it back. John Calvin. He was eight years old when those theses were being nailed. He was born in 1509. By 1517, eight years old. By 1523, he was already in the University of Paris, studying, to, studying philosophy. Some people love him. The reason I brought up Patton is it's almost the same way. Some people loved him for the work that he did in the Reformation. Some people hate him for the work that he's done in theology. But no matter what, he helped push the Reformation so that we're here to this point in history. And we'll get to that. Do you know what Protestant comes from? What, what word does Protestant come from? To protest. Ironically, most of us don't know where Protestant originates. Because most of us think that the Protestant movement was protesting against bad theology. And that is not the original protesting that happened. Actually, there were already Lutherans around. And Lutherans, just like the Christians and the Jews, were trying to live together with the Roman Catholic Church and the priests. They were trying to worship together. But the people of power, the Roman Catholic Church, did not like how many of their people were going to this side. So what they started doing is they said, oh, these people, they want, to, they want to be in our government and they want to be in leadership? Well, let's sort of make it so that can't happen. And so they started cutting them out of leadership so that they were just this sect that was sort of annoying. And so the Lutheran said, we must protest this. We are equal to you. It was about protesting the way they were being treated, not protesting their theology originally. But now the context is they were protesting so much later, or something so much bigger, which was theology. So you get to the point where Lutherans were already had a force going on. And in 1936, as John Calvin, which was now already 27 years old, I had to think about that for a second, 27 years old, is traveling through Geneva to go back home to his persecuted land in France. And Pharrell, William Pharrell, if you know who the Pharrell is now, 
Pharrell, as they called him, said this. If you do not stay in Geneva, you will be cursed. If you do not stay in Geneva, you will be cursed. Could you imagine somebody saying that to you? If you do not stay in Chicago, you will be cursed. If you do not stay... He was so bold to say this that he shook John Calvin to his core, believing this might be the word from the Lord. See, Pharrell, William Pharrell, was a reformer. And this reformer was 20 years older than Calvin. And he figured, my life, my energy will not last very long. I need somebody that I can mentor to take my place. Now, Pharrell did not know Calvin. Pharrell had only read part of his book, which was called The Institutes of Christian Religion. Now, this book, after the Reformation, was the study of Protestants for hundreds of years. And actually, in some universities, Christian universities, it still is the basis of Christian theology up till now. What an impact. But before we get there, so that was in 1536. You'll see, I'll probably catch myself doing that again. In 1536, that is when he had this encounter with Pharrell, which changed the face of his life. But in 1523, we will rewind. He was a 14-year-old. That his dad pushed, he was a brilliant 14-year-old, into philosophy with the hopes he will be one of the greatest priests of France. Actually, he, is the first, uh, he was the first son to survive infancy out of four. So son number one died, son number two died, three died. You know, after a while, you just quit trying. He survived, and his dad said, I know that God has got something for this guy. So he actually had two other sons, and he believed all three of them would aspire to priesthood. Now, back then, you have to understand the context. Over Europe, the wealthiest institution around was not a monarchy. It was the Roman Catholic Church. They, they owned more land. Remember I said when Wycliffe was around? They owned one-third of all of England's property. And that is one country. They owned so much land, gold, people, I would say. So if you wanted a lucrative job, you would become a priest. But it came to the point where his dad thought, you know what, there is probably more money to be made out there. And so in AD 1526 to somewhere, I see dates are different, all the way up to 1529, his dad moved him to the University of Orleans and said, you will become a lawyer and you will be the best lawyer around. So he, he studied quietly in the University of Orleans, and then, and then, I don't know if I can even pronounce this right, but he moves to the University of Bourget, I'm assuming it is. 
And he comes encounter, he, he has an encounter with these writings from this German guy called Martin Luther. And he's, he's reading this stuff about Martin Luther and he starts having this conflict because the way that he talked about it is he was so steeped in, and these are his words, the superstitions of the church established that he said it would have taken an act of God to pry him out of the church. Now, if you read, according to, to the Great Controversy, if you know that book, actually, the author, Ellen White, says that part of the process was that Calvin had a cousin. And this cousin was a reformer who was in Paris. And the two kinsmen would, would talk. But they would talk about the political landscape of these two churches fighting against each other. And it says that, that the one said this. The cousin said, There are but two religions in the world. The one class of religions are those, who, those which men have invented, in which man saves himself by ceremonies and good works. The other is the one religion which is revealed in the Bible, which teaches man to look for salvation solely from the free grace of God. And this conflict between, this controversy in his own heart grew more and more. And it doesn't give the specifics. He never really does. But Calvin said, I was compelled by free grace, and he had to be converted. There was nothing else he could do. He either had to blind his eyes and turn away and say, I will believe these superstitions, or I will believe in the free grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. And at this time, persecution in France was growing and growing. Now, um, at this time, the king of France was Francis I. And actually, Francis I, I know this is just a history lesson, but to me it was, it was pretty cool history. So Francis I was actually pro-Protestant. He was actually pro-let's-do-everything. Sort of like how Constantine said, hey, let's, we got pagans over here, we've got Christians over here, let's mix them together. We're all good, right? It's good for the economy, it's good for the government. Well, he said the same thing. And, his, and it was probably the urging of his sister, who was a reformer, and said, hey, come on, these guys aren't so bad. I know you're a Catholic, you're an ardent Catholic, but we can work together. So they did, and he actually used it for his benefit politically against Charles V. And he's like, hey, this is great. Until October of 1534. Which, and if any of you have heard of the affair of the, of the placards, has anybody heard of that? The affair of the placards? You guys are still too young. Um, maybe, Bill, you've probably heard about it. You were around. But the affair of the placards was this. You know, these were probably university students. You know, university students, they're growing, they're exploring. But, you know, I was told when I became an RA at Southern Adventist University, 
I was told, hey, you are going to have freshmen on your hall. And remember this. Freshmen are four years away from eighth grade. Just remember that. They're university students, but they're only four years away from eighth grade. And I thought, you know, that's a brilliant statement. These guys were not always that smart, even though they were university students. And they printed off all these placards, these posters, that mocked mass, that mocked the Virgin Mary, and they actually started mutilating some of the icons of, I mean, some of the, the statues and stuff of Virgin Mary. At least that's what tradition teaches. And they put these up all over town. These placards. Boom, 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 boom. So much so that one, every account I read, it said one actually made it to the bedchamber of King Francis I. Well, he was an ardent Catholic who was trying to mesh them together. But some of the priests came to him and said, this is so much more than religion here. They're trying to overthrow you as king. So this set him furious. And he said, we are going to kill and get rid of all of these Protestants. If they're trying to overthrow my kingdom, we're going to get rid of them. So there was a fierce persecution against the French. And actually, luckily, as tradition, tradition teaches, Calvin was already in Germany learning more about uh, Martin Luther. But if that wouldn't have happened, some accounts say we probably wouldn't know the Protestant Reformation, the Reformed Church within Europe, the way it is without Calvin if he wouldn't have been out of France. Well, this actually led where he went to Germany, and there's a city on the, on the border of Germany and Switzerland called Basel. And he ended up right there in 1534. But then remember that story where I was saying that he was going back to France, and he goes back, and he ends up in Geneva, which is on the border of Switzerland and France. And he ends up there, and they say, and this Pharrell says, you need to stay here. We are hungering for it, and you can't go back home. So what happened is the persecution went so far that it actually reached into Geneva, and he was expelled with Pharrell from Geneva. He was exiled out, but then a few years later, they fought against them and said, no, we are, we are taking this in the name of freedom. So Geneva became a city and still is that is supposed to be one that is not of, of prejudice, not where anybody can control you. Hence, have you heard of, you know, conventions happening there? United Nations has, headquarters, has some headquarters of agencies there. The International Red Cross is Geneva. Even when criminals want to get rid of their money so that it's not accessible to the authorities, 
What kind of bank accounts is art traditionally have? The Swiss bank accounts. This became a movement beyond Protestantism for Switzerland to be a safe haven. But before we get to what John Calvin did that was great, we got to get to what John Calvin did that was potentially harmful. So John Calvin actually started pastoring there in Geneva. He was teaching, he was doing Bible studies. People would come from all over to hear him preach. But he said, Rome has their power, which we will not allow in here. But we need to build walls for that. Now, not physical walls, we need to build walls. So he actually started thinking that Geneva would be sort of like the Jerusalem of old, the new Jerusalem. But what had happened is it became actually the Protestant Rome, as some historians call it. What he started doing is he actually started, uh, he started mandating abolishment of taverns. He started having penalties. If he found a fortune teller in the land, there were, there were penalties for that. You could not gamble on Sunday. I guess on the rest of the days you could, um, which is positive for some of you. Um, just don't do it on Sunday. Um, he said all church distractions, especially noises, should be abolished. And your church attendance was mandatory. And this became a city mandate. Now, for some, this is good. Some people like borders and rules and but some people don't. Have you ever heard of the word carouse? You know what carouse means? Carouse? Well, it's believed, you know, there's, there's, there's a city two miles south of Geneva. And, it's, and the name of that city is Carouge. And some people believe that they are tied together, that somehow either the etymology of the city or the etymology of the word are tied together, Carouge. So some people believe that carouse comes from the, from the city name Carouge. Because what would happen is his religion became so restrictive that people just needed to get out. And so they fled to the city on a regular basis, two miles away, and they would drink, and they would do lots of stuff, like we would call it maybe the Vegas of, of the area. They would do this stuff just to get away from Calvin and his strictness. It really sort of backfired on him at times. Now, here's a little side note. Because I think at times we have fallen into the same pit. Remember, when, when, when the, the writers of Scripture wrote, they wrote that what we believe is a religion of joy, peace, hope, gladness, but have 
have we at times, and this is just a question, have we at times made our religion not about hope, but restriction? About, about keeping people in line? About conforming to the way we believe it should be kept? That is not what the original reformers did until this guy right here. Actually, it, I find so much irony that originally the university students that were, all of the reformers that are well-known had sort of the same path. They were smart. They were open-minded to studying. And a lot of them were studying law. They came across writings especially scripture, they were studying Latin or something. And at the university setting, they said, I am free now with, with learning about the free grace of Jesus Christ. Now it's almost the opposite. They're trying to, you know, I see a lot of universities trying to expel that kind of thinking when it comes to religion. But this guy started restricting. And so people started leaving. But you had... People leaving that wanted a certain lifestyle. But there were still people that were coming and listening to him preach. Now, that was one of his challenges. There was another challenge that many of you know theologically. How many of you have ever read about John Calvin or know John Calvin? You've, at least if you've read the great controversy ever, there, there is part of, part of his legacy there. Now, like I said, you can love him or you hate him. And within our context, there are, there are Protestants that hate John Calvin for the theology that he brought in called predestination. Now, whether he was the originator or not, he's still considered the father of predestination through Scripture. And I just want to, I, I do want to read a couple of verses with you. So I want you to, you'll need your, I didn't put them up there. I want you to go to Matthew 11. Because I, I want you to at least, whether he was vilified for something that he doesn't, you know, shouldn't be attributed to him or not, but I, I want you to at least understand where he's coming from scripturally. I'm not saying I agree with him. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 26. Our next verse will be John 5, just if you want to know where we're going after this. So Matthew 11... Verses 25 and, 25, uh, 25 and 26 says this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So he started thinking, did God actually hide things from some people and reveal them to others? So go to John chapter 5. This is going to be a little bit rapid fire. John chapter 5, verse 21. If you're wanting to think ahead after that, it's Acts 13. But John chapter 5, verse 31 says this. I testify about myself. Wait, wait. Uh, no, 21. Sorry. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it to. Acts 13, 
verse 48. Acts 13, verse 48, says this. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So they were appointed. And then, here was one of his, what he felt was firm pillar. Verse, Revelation 13. Sorry, I should have told you that earlier. Revelation 13, verse 8, says this. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now, that is the NIV translation, but if you read in most of the translations, it says those who have been written in the book from the foundation of the world. And that was the translation he was working with. So he believed that they were written in before the world was even founded. He believed in predestination. Now, do we believe that some people are set by God to be saved and some people to be lost? We do not. And this is, we're not going to do a theological study on this. But I'll tell you this. Well, I had, let me say it this way. When I was in Texas, I would teach class every year. I would teach at least one class a year. And there was one girl in my class who was not Presbyterian, but she was very Calvinistic in her thinking. I, her whole family was. And... And they believed in the sovereignty of God, which we do too, but they believe that the sovereignty sort of whatever God wants to do, he can do. Now let me ask you a question, because I asked the same question to her. Does God always get what he wants? Does God, I, I want more than two people to answer me. Does God always get what he wants? No. He doesn't. Actually, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, hey, God's delay is happening for a reason. And the reason he's delaying is because he would like all people to be saved. How many people? Now, if we believe the other testimony of the scripture, will all people be saved? So God doesn't get everything that he wants. Actually, because he added free will in here, God is limited. You know the, the question, can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? And in a sense, I say yes. That is what he did with free will. God will not force anybody. This is what Seventh-day Adventists believe. Okay, so I, don't, I understand that maybe some of you are not Seventh-day Adventists. But Seventh-day Adventists, part of this whole great controversy theme is God could say, if he was ultimately sovereign the way that Calvinists believed, 
God could have a one-page Bible and say, just do this because I said so, because I am bigger than you, and you should just follow me. I'm bigger, I'm smarter, but he doesn't. He explains himself. He tries to earn loyalty through his actions, through his love. Actually, that's why our theology is the way it is. You know, I I hate getting on these tangents, but I do really don't. So so you think about you think about the investigative judgment. You know, this is one of our. it, it, It seems like it's become. It's not really one of our pillars, but but the investigative judgment. The investigative judgment has put a lot of people into fear within our denomination. God is searching all the books and people are and 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 his agents are searching to see what we've done and not done. That has no purpose or that 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 has nothing to do with the investigative judgment. There really is only one person on trial in the investigative judgment and who is that? God himself. He says, there are people that you might not see in the kingdom. And there are people that you might see that you would think, maybe they shouldn't be in the kingdom. So I am going to let you examine everything so that you know you can trust me. That is gospel, people. One of his faults was he didn't believe that. He believed God will just do what he wants, and he set people, he set the Pharaoh there just so that the Pharaoh could, you know, go to ruin and that God would be glorified. And evangelism was for the purpose of awakening people to the truth that they were saved already. Like I said, we're not going to study this. But I do want to tell you about what Calvin did that impacted where you are right now. Especially you who were born in this country. So, at this point, John Calvin, you remember there was persecution happening in France and in England also, so much so that Geneva... In 1550, I believe it was, there were 13,000 people in the city of Geneva. Well, the refugees knew that this was a safe place to go. So 6,000, you know, that's almost half of the whole city of Geneva. 6,000 people came from France and England into Geneva, these refugees. So I have never been to Europe. I would have liked to go this last you know, September and October, and that's for a different story, and some of you know. But I would have liked to go to Europe and go see Geneva, but my, what I've heard from some people that have been to Geneva, that there is still some architecture there, that what they did is you had these buildings, these living quarters, and they actually are a different architecture placed on top. They built because the refugees were coming so fast into the city that they just built on top of these buildings. 6,000 refugees within months had poured into Geneva, and a lot of them were French, 
and Calvin had a heart for them. And so a lot of them started listening to his preaching. But because of the French, specifically the French at first, he would inspire within them and saying, we can't hold this message here. You secretly have to go take it back to France. And so he was an empowerer of missionaries to France. And eventually he actually even wrote a commentary in French of Romans and said, please take this back to France. Well, the French were not the only ones that were benefiting from this because there was a guy from Scotland that came by. His name was John Knox. Have any of you heard of John Knox? And he said, we need these writings in English and we need a new English Bible for these refugees. Have you ever heard of the Bible called the Geneva Bible? That was John Calvin and John Knox putting the scripture for these English refugees and eventually to send back to Scotland and to England. Actually, it came to so, it it spread so far that, have you ever heard of the people called the Puritans that came to this country? They came here with an English Bible called the Geneva Bible. And you know that they weren't perfect. They did not believe in freedom of religion. They believed our religion is superior. But they brought the English Bible to this new land. So he started sending, sending Bibles in English and in French to France, England, Scotland, and eventually to this land It came to so much, it it, it was spreading so fast that the Reformation in France happened this way. He said, we will start church plants there secretly. In 1555, there were five five church plants that had happened that year. By 1559, 100 church plants. And within 100 years... 2,000 church plants within France alone. Actually, in 1565, it was believed out of the 16 million people in France total, one-fifth of them had become Protestant Christians, and they were called the Huguenots. It had exploded in France. And that's why we have France, the Christian nation it is right now, right? That was sarcasm. Because at this time, or right after, there was a king called King Louis XIV. Who did not like this movement. Did not like the Protestants. So he persecuted them so fiercely that at one point, it says at one swipe, just... 20,000 of those Huguenots would move to Germany or would be killed, burned at the stake. And that's probably the enemy was afraid that in 100 years, 2,000, I've never heard of 2,000 churches being planted in such a quick time. But this was John Calvin. John Calvin 
was such a pastorly person, and, and he's really been vilified because of the predestination. He was such a, a pastorly person that they found letters that he wrote to people that had moved tens and 20 years before to these missionaries. Stay encouraged. You know, I know persecution's coming, but here's, here's some scripture to encourage you. And his basis of the whole ministry was, let's get the word out there. And you read the scripture earlier. It said this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may thoroughly may be thoroughly equipped for every work. And he said this about the word. He said, so since no daily responses are given from heaven and the scriptures are the only records in which God has been pleased to consign his truth to perpetual remembrance, the full authority which they ought to possess with the faithful is not recognized unless they are believed to have come from heaven as directly as if God had been heard giving utterance to them. The word is the basis of reformation. I know we went through a lot of history in this reformation phase. But if there's one thing, if there's one legacy, if I can be part of this reformation, I believe that they left. And one legacy, hopefully, that I leave before Jesus comes or before whatever happens is to inspire you to get into the word. The word transforms. Whether you believe my preaching or not, whether you believe what we're doing at this church or not, whether it's, there is one solid ground and it is right here. This is what God has given to you. Be inspired by it. Be changed by it. And let the spirit Continue the reformation through you and his word until he returns. And as God told Moses to tell Aaron to bless the people, Yevareka Adonai Vayishmareka, Yaer Adonai Panav Alecha Vichuneka, Yisa Adonai Panav Alecha Vayasem Lecha Shalom, the Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. Father, anoint us, inspire us, and empower us. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everybody.